you could open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be going through the Lord's Prayer, which is uh, verses 5 to 15. And you, you may be asking, what does that have to do with Christmas? Um, I don't know, really. Um, I was asked to preach for January 1st, and uh, Chris is under the weather, and so here I am. Praise the Lord. God's in control. Uh, I'm excited to preach this. Um, I believe fully that God has a word for us in this, for this Christmas season. I love Christmas. I'm not sure how this necessarily works. Uh, Jesus grew up, and then he was preaching uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and that's where, that's where we're going to be today. So Christmas is awesome, and so is prayer. So welcome to Redemption Red Deer. We're a church under construction. Happy to be here. Looking forward to tonight. So, um, God is in control. Matthew chapter 6, 5 through 15. A little context. The book of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It's the first of four Gospels. The Old Testament is about the future king coming. The New Testament, the king arrives, which is Christmas. The four Gospels are eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and subsequent resurrection from the dead. The Sermon on the Mount is chapter 5 through 7 in Matthew's Gospel. And it's the longest and fullest continued discourse and teaching by Jesus himself that we have on record. It's some of the most beneficial and practical teaching of what it means to follow Christ. And I love how commentator William MacDonald says it. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is meant for all, past, present, and future, who acknowledge Christ as King. In it, the Sermon on the Mount, the King, Jesus, summarizes the character and the conduct expected of his subjects being us so verses 5 to 15 matthew chapter 6 5 to 15 they're titled the lord's prayer and these are the verses we're going to look at tonight if we could uh, stand together as i read god's word starting in verse 5 and when you pray you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Amen. The word of God. You may be seated. So this passage... I've got a few different things that I wanted to point out. Uh, but the first one I'll start with is uh, Jesus is our authority. I just 
what st stood out to me at the beginning was the words you must or go or don't do this or pray then like this. Jesus is teaching about prayer with authority and it's a refreshing. This is what got the crowds fired up. In Matthew chapter 7 it says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like their scribes. Jesus is not making suggestions or trying to give helpful tips. He's clear and straightforward. He's an expert and he tells us what to do. When Jesus says, don't do it like this, we don't do it like this. When he says, do it like this, we do it like this. I love that. I find this very helpful. I feel like we live in a world that is so vague and filled with armchair experts who really don't have the ability or the authority. They act like it, but they don't actually have it. It's distracting, exhausting, and confusing. In my investment world, that's what I do for my day job, December is the, type of, the time of year where all the so-called experts give out their predictions for 2022. We don't actually go back and fact check their predictions from 2021 or 2020, which they got wrong. But again, here they are doing the same thing. They don't know what they're doing. I also get a golf magazine every month that gives me new tips and new suggestions on how to be a better golfer. It's all lies. So Jesus is not like that. He speaks with clarity and he speaks with authority. We can trust him. Why can we trust Jesus? Well, first of all, Jesus is God. He is the creator and sustainer of all things that we hear in Colossians 1. This is what Christ, or Chris preached last week. The story of Christmas is Jesus coming fully God, fully man. Matthew 1.23 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God. We can trust Jesus because he, because he is right, true, and perfect. God raised him from the dead to prove that. And we can trust Jesus because he is an expert on kingdom matters. He wrote the book. He's the author. So when he says, pray like this, we're to listen and to follow what he says. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is everything. He's why we're here. He is king. And for those of us who know and love the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus has the complete and perfect authority to teach us on prayer. I personally, I am working on learning to be get better in prayer. When Chris asked me to preach on this, I asked Chris, I said, is it because I'm such a great person of prayer? And he said, no, but we need to get better at it. So I wasn't offended, and it's true. We all need to grow in it. But I can preach, hopefully, Lord willing, with authority because Jesus Christ is true and right. So let's get back to verse 5. In the first four words in verse 5, it says, and when you pray. And then in verse 6, it says, but when you pray. And then in verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 7, it says, and when you pray. I'm noticing a theme here. If you believe in God, you pray. If you call yourself a Christian, you pray. If you have a real and authentic relationship with the God of the universe through your faith and trust in the saving work of Christ, then you are a praying person. Jesus expects us to be praying. Jesus, um, Jesus assumes that we are people of prayer. 
It's like a doctor saying, it's like when you breathe, or a chef who says, it's like when you eat. It's not an if you pray, it's a when you pray. Are you praying? Do you pray? Prayer is what I would call proof of life for the Christian. Praise God for prayer. If you don't pray, then there's no faith. There's a difference between I pray, but I'm not good at it, versus I don't pray at all. Getting better at prayer is something that we can all do. And then back to Matthew 6, verse 5, it says, and when you pray, the next word after when is you. Point to who Jesus is talking to. It's you. It's you and me. It's not when somebody else prays. It's not necessarily when your spouse prays or when you're bowed your head but you're not paying attention at all. It's when you pray. Prayer is the easiest thing to do and it's the hardest thing to do. I'm gonna say that again. Prayer is the easiest thing to do. It's also the hardest thing to do. Prayer can be long, prayer can be short, it can be formal, it can be informal, it can be loud, it can be quiet, but prayer is the heartbeat of the Christian life. At Redemption Red Deer, of course, we have six distinctives, and our number one distinctive that we have on that board is fervent prayer, praying at all times in the spirit. If you are a follower of Christ, based upon what it says here in Matthew 6, verse 5, you are called to pray. We are to seek the Lord. And when you pray, Jesus says, Jesus, who is our authority, expects us to pray. So moving on in Matthew 6, 5, it says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. If you're taking notes, the next uh, point here is don't be a hypocrite. It's about God and not others. A hypocrite, under definition, is a person who claims or pretends to have certain beliefs about what is right, but behaves or acts in a way that disagrees with those beliefs. It's a person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. The term hypocrite that was used here in the New Testament in the original Greek, it refers to an actor, like a person on stage who is acting under a mask or impersonating a character, a counterfeit. I'm not sure if there's anything we dislike more in our society than hypocrites. We especially dislike religious hypocrites. That's the type of hypocrite that Jesus is referencing here. The Sermon on the Mount contains Jesus's attitude toward the religious leaders of the time and toward the law. Jesus is preaching to groups of people and one of the groups of people there at the Mount are religious leaders. Jesus is well aware of who he is teaching. Later on in Matthew 7, starting in verse 21 to 23, he, there's a um, story here that says, I never knew you. And I'll just read it. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Those were hypocrites, religious hypocrites. They acted the part, but Jesus never knew them. What did the hypocrites do? Back to 6, 5. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, and they like to be seen by others. Religious hypocrites want people to see them and see them as religious. They wanted the people to revere and applaud them, but not God. And notice the posture of the hypocrite. They're standing and they're in a public place. Look at me, look at me, that's what they're saying. They are full of pride and looking for the applause of men. As followers of Christ, our goal can never be to elevate ourselves. We elevate Christ, it's all about Jesus. Remember John the Baptist? He had a thing going, he had lots of followers. He had a brand. His brand was repentance and unique clothing. But what was his desire? In John 3.30, it says, Jesus must increase, he must increase, I must decrease. Do you want others to see your good deeds and glorify you? As I've been thinking about this week, it's been humbling. Um, I found it convicting. I feel like the first part of dealing with hypocrisy is admitting it when we see it in ourselves. You serve the Lord because you love him, not for the applause of men. One of the main reasons people say that they have turned away from the faith is not who Jesus is, but it's the hypocrisy of those who call themselves Christians. I remember when my wife's dad was passing away, we were in a church and people knew and we had a nice lady come up to us and say, I'm so sorry your father's passing away. Is there anything we can do for you? And actually my wife's brother, Daryl, said, you know, with running the business and how busy we are at the hospital, our house is a bit of a mess. And she said, oh, my house is a mess too. Well, I'll pray for you guys. She wanted to help us, but she didn't want to help us. She was trying to say the right things. She didn't mean it. It really sticks with me even almost 15, 20 years later. But I forgive you. Let's forget that. <laughs> Lord, help us not to be like that. Position, authority, money, they aren't important in the kingdom of God. What matters is sincere obedience from the heart. Do you want earthly reward or do you want eternal reward? It says in the scripture, when they are seen by others, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They got their applause. People thought they were religious. It's not gonna mean anything when they get to eternity. What did Jesus want the faithful to do? Back to the text in verse six. It says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus wants us to have regular one-on-one -on -one time with him, with the Father, focused on him. It's not a show, it's not a spectacle, it's just you and God. We gotta get rid of the distractions and quiet yourself. Secret means between you and God. You don't have to post it and you don't have to boast about it to others. An important note I wanna make here, the New Testament is filled with examples of sincere and appropriate public prayer not every time we pray, it has to be done alone. But the focus on prayer is on God, 
In regards to public prayer, literally in verse 9, you know, coming up in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus starts off the Lord's Prayer with our Father. It's a public prayer. The issue Jesus is addressing here is, it's not about where we pray, but why we pray. Are we praying to be seen and noticed by people, or to be heard by God? Again, I'm going to say this again. The issue Jesus is addressing is, it's not about where we pray, but why. Are we praying to be seen and noticed by people, or to be heard by God? Again, are you seeking a heavenly reward? Communion with Him? Answered prayer? Eternity with Christ? Or are you seeking the applause of men? In verse 7, it says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. The word Gentiles here in Greek is translated ethnikos. I think I nailed it. Which means nations or heathen, a non-Israelite. And the idea of empty phrases can also be translated as meaningless repetition, wordiness, foolishness, much talk without purpose. God is not impressed by the amount of words you use. It's not about the amount of hashtags on your Bible verse post. God wants sincerity. In verse 8, it says, Do not be like them. Don't be like the Gentiles with their many meaningless words. For your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. Isn't that great? God loves you and cares for you so much that He knows your specific needs and requests. He truly knows what's best for you. I wrote down here, Father knows best. Notice the word need as well. It's not necessarily want, and that's important. One of my favorite examples of efficient short prayer comes from the book of Nehemiah in chapter 2. At that time, Nehemiah was in front of the king and very sad, which was unusual. And the king asked him why he was sad. And the king said to him, this is 2 verses 4 and 5, it says, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, I don't know if you caught that there, but basically he was asked a question and before he even responded, it says he prayed to the God of heaven. That's pretty efficient. Do you think God knew what Nehemiah needed at that moment? Did Nehemiah, did Nehemiah need to fill in the Lord first about all the news and the situation before he prayed? No. God heard him and answered his prayer. Now, I don't want you to miss in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, he did spend a lot of time fasting and praying. So he was doing both of what Matthew is suggesting here. But it's pretty awesome how God even answered his prayer as he prayed in between the question and his response. To summarize verses five to eight, here's a list of do's and don'ts from Jesus regarding prayer. Do, pray. Don't, not pray. Do, be real and be sincere. Don't be a hypocrite or an actor. Do, pray in private focused on God. Don't pray only in public, praying only with people who are listening, to, with only the people you are, who are listening to you in mind. Do 
pray knowing God hears every word you speak and sees you in secret. Don't pray meaningless things over and over, thinking the more times you say something, the better you will hear it. It actually makes me think of, funny enough, um, when I was a kid, I was not a Christian, I didn't go to church, but I'm old enough that in our public school, we used to say the Lord's Prayer before school. I would say it over and over and over. I can, I can recite it even to this day, but I never really knew what it meant. I was just doing what the Gentiles do, repeating things over and over and over. You do pray understanding God will do what is best for you and what you need, but don't pray expecting God will just give you what you want. Do pray seeking the true reward, which includes communion with God himself, answered prayer, and heavenly eternal rewards, which we can hardly understand. But don't pray for meaningless earthly reward, which is the approval and the applause of others. So the Lord's Prayer, starting in verse 9, it says, Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. I'll stop it there. Using the word our Father is meaningful. It's meaningful because God is not only majestic and holy, but he's also personal and loving. God as Father, a good Father, perfectly loving, perfectly kind. I like how Matthew, Matthew Henry says it in his commentary. This is from the early 1700s. So it sounds a little funny. We must address ourselves to him as our Father and must call him so. Nothing more pleasing to God, nor pleasant to ourselves than to call God Father. Christ in prayer mostly called God Father. If he be our Father, he will pity us under our weaknesses and infirmities, Psalm 13. He will spare us, Malachi 3.17. Will make the best of our performances, though very defective. Will deny nothing that is good for us, Luke 11, 11 to 13. When we come repenting of our sins, we must eye God as Father, as the prodigal son did in Luke 15, 18, as a loving, gracious, reconciled Father in Christ. Some of you here may have had a difficult relationship with your father or no relationship with your father, and I'm sorry about that. Please know God is our heavenly Father and he is loving and gracious. Earthly fathers fail in many ways, but God is good. The second way that our Father, when Jesus prays our Father, that's meaningful, it's he's talking to the first person of the Trinity. Prayer is addressed to God the Father. You don't pray to angels or saints. You pray to God the Father. This helps us understand the work of the Trinity. In Ephesians 2.18, it states, For through him... That's him being Jesus. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's through Christ, the spirit within, praying to the Father. Through Christ, spirit within, praying to the Father. To know Christ means you've been born again. That's John chapter 3. And raised to life by the spirit, as it says in Ephesians 2. And you now come with confidence, boldness, and access to God the Father before the throne. Hebrews 10 and Ephesians 3. And then, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Meaning God is uh, here. He's also in heaven. 
But the use of heaven here is in reference to the glory of God. Where uh, I think of Isaiah 6.1, it says in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. God is holy, holy, holy. God is high and lifted up. Our Father in heaven, he's able to do anything for anyone, anywhere, for the sake of his glory. He sees, he knows, he's not encumbered by time or distance. He is able. I love that. So in the next section of verses, it says, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm going to basically call those three petitions, and they're petitions unto God. And then the next three after that, it says, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, and lead us not into temptation. And those are three petitions for us. So there's three for God, three for us. And this is an important prayer model. The Christian prayer starts with God. It starts with worship for him, worship to him. Sorry. We want to start with reverence, honor, and thankfulness for who he is. And then we bring our needs before him. In verse, verses 9 and 10, it says, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And hallowed means holy, set apart, sanctified, separate from the world. In Psalm 138.2, it says, for, your, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. I love what it says in Philippians 2.9. I'll just turn there. Sorry, it's taking me a while. It says in Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has highly exalted him, being Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Hallowed be your name. Our prayer starts with worship, ascribing praise and honor to him who is worthy. In verse 10, it says, Your kingdom come. In Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is referred to more than 30 times. Asking for the kingdom to come is submission to God's rule and reign. Again, in William MacDonald's commentary, it's helpful here. It says, the kingdom of heaven is the sphere in which God's rule is acknowledged. The word heaven is used to denote God, as shown in Daniel 4.25. Wherever people submit to the rule of God, there the kingdom of heaven exists. We are praying for the advancement of God's cause and putting his interests first ahead of our own. And when we say your will be done, our prayer, it's our prayer that puts our trust in him, that he knows best. It's submitting our will to his will. It's asking God to enable us to do what is pleasing to him. And when we say on earth as it is in heaven, in heaven God's perfect will is being carried out right now. The worship of God, the sovereign rule by God, and the performance of his will are all a reality of heaven. When we pray on earth, we are mindful of God's permissive will, that he allows, allows things to happen versus his perfect will, what he has written for us in scriptures. When, when, we, we, when we, see, we see the consequences of sin every day in our life, and that falls under the idea of God's permissive will, 
But when we pray on earth as it is in heaven, it's a cry from the people of God that they would worship him, honor him, and serve him here on earth in a same or similar way as to when we get to heaven. And then starting in verse 11, the transition from our petitions to God in terms of petitions for us. It starts with, give us, give, give us this day our daily bread. There's much to be said about this verse. Every word is important. The idea of give, give us, it's understanding that our provision comes from God alone, not from our physical efforts. Giving us or our daily bread, it's understanding we are part of a family, part of a community. This day or our daily, we are asking for today. We're not worried about tomorrow. Do we have provision for today? We need to learn how to be content with what God has provided. I know so many people who have bread for days, years, or even generations, yet they are not content. If God has provided bread for you today, then don't be anxious for tomorrow. And then the, term, the, the word bread, uh, bread is used in scripture to signify wholesome sustenance. Jesus referred to himself as the bread of life, life in uh, John 6.35. And then in verse 12, it says, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. The term debt here isn't referring to your mortgage or car loan. It means offense or trespass. In the New Living Translation, translation it, it says, forgive us our sins as we, have, uh, for, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Verses 14 and 15, I'll skip there, it helps us here. Jesus gives us a footnote of explaining verse 12. Basically, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This isn't a complicated concept to grasp. It's a very important to forgive others. But this is a very hard concept to accomplish in practice. If you have been wronged, you know how hard that is. Holding on to hurt does not help us. It hurts us. We need to let it go. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean you forget. It's a process. It's a commitment of restoration of relationship for your sake and for the sake of your walk with the Lord. If you have unforgiveness towards others, it's a dangerous and difficult place to be. The Bible is clear that we need to forgive. Is this easy? Not at all. But that's why we pray. And then back to verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We know from James 1 that God does not lead us into temptation. James 1, 13 and 14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This petition expresses a healthy distrust for, of one's own ability to resist temptations or to stand up under trial. Deliver us from evil. Remember that, uh, that it says in 1 Peter 5 eight, be sober-minded, be, sober be watchful. Your adversary, adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The Lord's Prayer. 
We need to recognize the authority of Christ. We pray focused on God alone and not for the applause of others. We pray to the Father who is holy and good and he loves you and he knows what you need. You pray to worship and to honor him. We're praying that his kingdom would come and your will be done in your life and in this church. We're praying that you would be content and thankful for what he has provided. Let us never forget that we are dependent upon him for every breath. Pray that we would forgive others and we wouldn't hold on to the hurt. And know this, you are free in Christ, forgiven of your sin as you trust in him. He paid the full penalty for your sin and for mine. I love what E.M. Bounds wrote, wrote in his book, Power Through Prayer. He said, praying to God, the great God, the maker of all worlds, the judge of all men, what reverence, what simplicity, what sincerity, what truth in the inward parts demanded, how real we must be, how hardy. Listen to this, it says, prayer to God, the most noble exercise, the loftiest effort of man, the most real thing. Remember, prayer is the easiest thing to do, but it's the hardest thing to do. We need to persevere in prayer, and we need to continue to pray together at all times in the Spirit. Let's pray right now. Father, we thank you so much for tonight. We thank you for your word. Father, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you. And we just pray that you would be blessed and honored tonight. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.